0: Luke chapter 9 is our sermon text for this morning, page 1609, if you're using the pew Bible in front of you. I apologize if my voice isn't very pleasant to listen to this morning. Not that it's very pleasant necessarily the other Sundays, but uh, I have various Allergy and cold medications back here for all the things that could arise, but man plans, God directs, so we'll see what happens in the next half an hour or so. Also great to see Ainsley Pomeroy sitting there, back there with parents, Adam and Gabe. Welcome. We're, we're all anxiously awaiting to hear the baby's cry, which we're, we're sure will probably happen sometime in the next, uh, and, and that will be much more pleasant to listen to than my voice, of course. So, the the cooing, the crying of a child in a sanctuary is truly a reminder of God's blessing and uh, his wonderful gifts to us. Great to have you with us today. Let's begin reading in verse 21 of Luke 9. I'll read through verse 27, and I won't deal with uh, verses 21 or 22 that much, just to set the context, and I probably won't deal much with verse 27 either. That'll uh, tie in a little bit more with what we say uh, next week. So we'll focus on 23 through 26, but let's read 21 through 27 of Luke chapter 9, God's word given to us as people for our good. Uh, Let's give our attention to its reading. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. Amen. When water cascades down a mountain, it follows the path of least resistance. Gravity does its work and finds the easiest path down to the bottom. Psychological studies have shown that, by default, our brains work in this way, too following the path of least resistance. We process what we know and we accomplish tasks using the things that we know are, are present there in our mind. Rather than challenging ourselves or stretching ourselves to find new and innovative way of ways of doing things, we operate via the path of least resistance. This is a problem, however, as it relates to understanding Jesus and salvation and the kingdom of God. We can think, for instance, of Jesus' life, uh, his life did not follow the path of least resistance. What well, we just read at the beginning of our passage this morning, Jesus said uh, in the midst of his growing as a bit of a celebrity in Galilee, he said, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed. It was going to be a hard path, a hard life for Jesus to live. His teaching, as we have seen It challenges us, parables are oftentimes the meaning is veiled and trying to arrive at the meaning of what Jesus is saying, oftentimes we cannot follow the path of least resistance, we need to dig deeper and we need to try to understand what it is that he's teaching to us because oftentimes the words of salvation can seem paradoxical, contrary to our normal or perhaps natural ways of thinking different than customary expectations of of life and and the various ways that we see life working or the world working. But Jesus does this in order to confront the ways that we as human beings trust and process the reality that we think we begin to know by observing the world, by uh, looking at the world through our own lens of experience and understanding or understanding thinking that we're coming to understand the way that the world works. But if we only use our physical eyes to try and understand reality, if we rely on our own minds to arrive at what we think is the way that the world works, we will never come to understand the deepest realities which Jesus tries to teach us. The message of Jesus' life, and specifically the cross, the message of the cross where we see this paradox and and sometimes struggle to understand all that is going on there the depths of what is going on there that is what Jesus teaches us today he teaches us about those who follow him he has just told us his the 12 at least that he is going to suffer and to die and now he begins to talk about those who will follow him but in doing so he shows that, that his followers are found to be in his mold The same mold that he himself created through his life. The life that he calls his followers to live is a life similar to his own. For he is the leader, the forerunner, the trailblazer. And since he has done this, since he is the leader ahead of his people, he can call his people, his followers, to do three things. Three things. Relinquish control. Reorder our love. L-O-V-E. Reorder our love. And return to grace, relinquish control, reorder our love and return to grace. As we turn to the passage this week as it begins in verse 23, we remind ourselves that last week Jesus told the 12 only uh, that he was going to suffer and be rejected and be killed. But then at the beginning of verse 23 we see that he turns to all. In other words, he is saying this to everyone who is gathered there, the 12 His other followers and disciples, perhaps even many people that would not say they were followers or disciples of Jesus at this point, he just says this to all. But we see that in doing so, he's become a little bit more veiled about his suffering, what's actually going to happen in his life. Again, we see this duality in the Gospel of Luke of at times Jesus is very clear and transparent with the twelve. But then as he turns to everyone else, he is not as clear. And Jesus turns to the crowds. He says, this is what it means to be his follower. Three things that he lists here at the beginning. A follower of Jesus must deny himself or herself, must take up his or her cross, and must follow him. This first command is to deny oneself. Many Christians throughout the history of the church obviously have Pondered this command of Jesus. He's speaking very directly about what it means to be his followers. So people have spent a lot of time trying to unpack this. What does Jesus' call to self denial mean? Many have decided that what Jesus means here is probably a life that is centered around the renouncing of basic human comforts and rhythms like food or family life, or working in the world, Jesus' call to self-denial is to renounce the things that this world offers for a normal life, to withdraw, to spend your time mostly fasting and taking vows of poverty and chastity. Is that all that Jesus, is, is Jesus giving that universal command to all of his followers here? There are, of course, a few problems with that, right? Jesus is calling, calling his followers to do all of these things. And what we know about Jesus is that he himself came eating and drinking. In the shadow of John the Baptist, this was a little bit odd, wasn't it? John the Baptist, the prophetic voice in the wilderness, sort of removed from all the comforts of life, and, and Jesus comes along, and, and this was hard to understand for the leaders of Israel. He seemed to be a little bit opposed to the lifestyle of John the Baptist. But if Jesus did not renounce the world in that kind of a way, then how can he mean that he wants all of his followers to do that which he himself never did? A further problem that arises is that if Jesus is calling his people to do this through this call of self-denial, when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, it seems like the world loses a productive citizen and a good neighbor. And as we go through the message of Scripture, it seems that the message is that God calls us to live faithfully within the world, being a good neighbor, even being a good neighbor to those who are not followers of Jesus. We are are to be focused on living out the commands of God as we continue to occupy a place alongside those who live according to a different pattern. So that's not what Jesus means. Perhaps Jesus means that self-denial is a, a denial of the sinful patterns of living that we so often see embodied out in the world. Self-denial, fighting against, waging war against our sinful flesh. I think that's, that's certainly part of what Jesus is doing here. That self-denial is waging war against our sinful tendencies. But he's reaching even beyond that. Jesus' call to deny oneself goes right to the core of the way that we naturally live. How do human beings naturally live? What's What's our default setting? Our default setting is to act according to our own interests. We interpret the world. We look at reality through our own eyes and through our own understanding. our own experience. We do this because we do not naturally see the manifest glory of God in the world. If we saw God for all that he is, for the power that he truly possesses, if any human being were to behold that in one moment, we would hit the floor and we would understand that the idea of self-sovereignty, the idea of, of us being in charge of our own lives, is a myth. We would renounce the idea that we have a right to live for ourselves, but we don't naturally see the manifest glory of God. But Jesus is saying that his people must live by a different pattern. They must begin to see this manifest glory of God in the world. To deny yourself is to dethrone yourself, to take yourself off of the throne of your own life. Those who follow Jesus will demote themselves from master of their fate and captain of their souls. To deny yourself is to dethrone yourself. Second command, or the second part of being a follower of Jesus is to take up your cross daily. Those who follow Jesus are to take up their cross daily. This is a little bit of a common Christian phrase nowadays. We're a long ways removed from the life of Jesus, and so people use the phrase taking up your cross often. So we're used to that. We're used to that kind of talk. But think about Jesus saying it now. Now, Remember, he hasn't even been clear with the 12 the fact that he is going to go to a Roman cross. And he hasn't told all of the people listening that he's going to suffer and to die. And he invokes this idea of the cross. This wouldn't have been common Christian talk at that time. This would have been absolutely shocking. The cross was an instrument of execution. Jesus invoking this is like him talking about the noose or the electric chair or the lethal injection or a firing squad. It would have been shocking to all the people who hear it. And the call to carry your cross is, in a sense, make it ready. Get your own cross ready so that it can be used against you. To the words of the early church, to the words of various people scattered throughout the world, even in today's world, this is a command that perhaps uh, hits a little bit closer to home. We obviously have been blessed to live in a land where we are not killed for bearing the name of Christ, but that is not always true and not at all times. And it is in those times when people must act in a way that shows where their deepest loyalties are, and ultimate loyalties are to Christ and to his kingdom. We pray that God would never have this day come upon us or, or upon anyone. It's a terrible day. But when that day comes for anyone, they need to be willing to give their allegiance to Christ above all things. But there's something else going on here because Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily daily. Daily, every day. And you can only die a martyr's death once. Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily. And what he is calling us to do is every day to live in a way that shows where your deepest and most ultimate allegiances lie. Are they to Christ and to his kingdom? There are many people who have been placed in that one moment where they have had to say, renounce Christ or die. Early church father, Polycarp placed in a stadium, wild beasts who could devour him, threatens of burning him, renounce Christ or die. Polycarp says, 86 years I have served my God. He has never done me any injury. How can I renounce him now? But Jesus' words cut to the heart of everyone. Each and every day, we are to live in a way that shows where our deepest allegiances lie. But Jesus is not sending his people out, just willy-nilly. He has already begun to walk that trail for us. And that's why his third part of being a a follower is to follow him. Simply, follow me. If anyone would come after me, you must follow me. When I lived in California, one of the the popular activities was to hike. Hike up foothills and and sometimes even smaller mountains. Hiking was a a wonderful thing to do. But uh, just a... Some free advice from Pastor Dan, if you're hiking in Southern California, maybe a good idea to hang back a little bit from the leaders, because oftentimes on these paths there can be rattlesnakes, and if rattlesnakes are right there on the path, they're more likely to jump out at the leaders of the pack before you get there. So you hang back a little bit in case there are any rattlesnakes. The leader is going to encounter all of the trouble first, aren't they? That's the way it works. The same is true of Jesus. It is Christ who is the forerunner. It is Christ who is the author and the finisher and the perfecter of our faith. He is the beginning. He is also the end. He is the first. He is also the last. And this ties together all of the things that Jesus says for us. These three things about what it means to be his follower. For Jesus is the one who came down to earth and while he remained fully God, and nothing changed in regard to his divinity, he laid down his life. He submitted to his Father's will. There's a sense in which he denied himself. He is also the one who carried the cross of his suffering all of his life, who made ready his instrument of execution for us. Thus the people of the kingdom know that they must follow the king. A similar fate for those who follow Jesus as what Jesus himself experienced. He is the one who has gone before us. This is what Jesus teaches about what it means to be a disciple. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. These are not easy. But they are perhaps somewhat simple to understand. And in verses 24 through 26, Jesus gives three statements that support what he has just said. They're grounding statements. This doesn't come through in our English translation. But in all of verses 24, 25, and 26, they begin with the word for. They are grounding statements. In other words, Jesus is explaining why it is that these three things are necessary for all of those who follow him. Why, why do his disciples, why do his followers exemplify these three things? Why does he say that they must? Jesus is explaining that now. First, just a bit of explanation or zoom out for just a minute. Jesus is not saying that if you are to be his follower, he's going to send you out and give you a little bit of a test run. Go out there, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. I'll send you out there if if you're you're doing everything that you need to do in a satisfactory way. Uh, Then I'll let you into my kingdom. Then I'll make you my follower. No, Jesus has already told us the way that his kingdom is built. It's built through his proclamation. It's built through his laying down his life, through his serving others. Jesus' work is what builds the kingdom. This is not, you know, salvation by works. This is not salvation through striving, becoming a follower of Jesus through striving. The kingdom of God is built through the proclamation of Jesus, the power of God, building us and transforming us. But this is what the followers of Jesus will live like, transformed, made to be like their savior, their elder brother. Jesus says this, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake Will find it. This is a paradoxical statement by Jesus, isn't it? How do you find something by losing it? For all of my like minded, forgetful brothers and sisters out there, we're all thinking together, I know that I don't find my keys by losing them, right? How many times do you lose your keys or your phone? Usually, if you're like me, they've been in your pocket the whole time, and you just forget to look there. You don't find things by losing them. So, what does Jesus mean? by uh, this paradoxical statement. He's saying that uh, this is how his kingdom relates to the patterns of this world. His kingdom is one of paradox. When we go through this world thinking that when it comes to the kingdom of God we must get what we need by taking the bull by the horns, right? Because so often that's the way that we think we're experiencing reality. It's good to work hard. It's good to set your mind to things. Usually you can see that relationship between reaping and sowing. And when we come to the kingdom of God, we try to follow by the same pattern. Take the bull by the horns. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Exercise control. And by doing so, we miss out on that which God gives to those who lose their lives for him. The kingdom of God is about relinquishing control. Relinquishing control. Relinquishing control. It's antithetical to our default setting, our natural minds, because our own experience is that we want and sometimes we need to be in control. But then inevitably, for everyone, there are moments, aren't there? There are moments where we all realize that we are so far from being in control. I was talking with one of our members this week in a hospital bed and we were talking together about how when you're in such a situation you feel so helpless. Control is so far away from you. We pondered together the words of Psalm 63 which says your steadfast love is better than life. Your steadfast love is better than life. Think about that verse. Think about how powerful that verse is to someone who constantly feels like their life hangs in the balance. It is better to be loved by the God of scripture than to live. Your steadfast love is better than life. And what Jesus is saying here with this paradoxical statement is he's giving us an opportunity to be molded and shaped by that truth, by this wonderful truth, Before that moment comes where we realize that the control we thought we had over our life was a myth. That God is the one who is in control. Acknowledge now that the sovereign self, the master of your fate, the captain of your soul, all of that is a myth according to the patterns of this world. Relinquish control. That's what Jesus calls us to do. His followers relinquish control. He goes on to say, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? We live in a world and in an age that is disordered. Disordered and dissolving from the selfie generation to constant distraction with all of the things that we have, to living in a world that's in many ways a global technocracy and people can get rich at the drop of a hat, rich beyond their wildest dreams, right? Anyone can. It's a powerful illusion, isn't it? So many things, the, 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 the good life, the, the, the delicacies of this world, it's a, a powerful illusion. We're given a vision of the good life around The accumulation of things, this is what life is all about. Not just celebrity culture, even normal suburban culture, as our expectations of the standard of living increase decade by decade. And in many ways, that's a good thing. We see God's common grace flourishing. But if we're not careful about what it does to our heart, what it does to ourselves, it will run ravage over our souls. So what we need to do is we need to have our loves rightly ordered. Our loves rightly ordered. What do I mean by that? Augustine was the theologian of the early church who spent a lot of time thinking about the things that we love as human beings. The things that we love. He said at our most basic level, we will love one of two things. He said this, there can be only two basic loves. The love of God unto the forgetfulness of self or the love of self unto the forgetfulness and the denial of God. This does not mean there are only two things that we can possibly love, but only that one of these two basic loves will define and set the tone for the way that we love everything else. He goes on to say this, Every man is to be loved as a man for God's sake. What does he mean by that? It means that when God creates someone, when God endows someone with his image and breathes life into him, As a fellow human being, you are to love that person, no matter where they come from, their ethnicity, their tribe, what corner of the earth they're from, their background. We are to love them for God's sake, for God has endowed them with dignity and with honor. We are to love people for God's sake. But then he says this, but God is to be loved for his own sake. And if God is to be loved more than any man, each man ought to love God more than himself. It's a beautiful, tightly packed argument, isn't it? God is to be loved for his own sake. If he is to be loved more than any man, I must love God more than I love myself, for I am just a man. Love of the self, love of the pleasures and delicacies of the world, love of all the stuff that is part of the alluring power of this fading age, all of that that can become idolatry in a second when we remove God and replace it with whatever we love more. All of that reminding us that ultimately we must love God more than any human being, including ourselves, because we are creatures and God is to be loved for his own sake. There was a young wife who who yearned for her husband to be the spiritual leader of the home. Her husband was a good guy, worked really hard, sacrificed a lot for her. He would get frustrated, why do you keep bringing this up? The spiritual leader business, don't you know that I love you more than anyone or anything? And his wife finally got up the courage to say, that's just it. I want you to love Christ more than you love me. For when you do that, your heart will be opened up and you will be able to love me more than you ever thought possible. What good is it if you love something in God's place? You spend your life striving and striving, but in doing so, you you miss the purpose for which you were created, to love and to glorify God, to serve him and to enjoy him. That's why we were created. We are to relinquish control. We are to reorder our loves. And finally, as we close, we are to return to grace. Jesus goes on to say, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Speaking of the last day, Jesus invokes this event as a warning. The the, the coming of Jesus, knowing that it's going to happen, does a couple of things for the Christian. It keeps us from sin. It also fills us with great anticipation that we might be found ready when our Savior does come back. But Jesus talks about this future event to warn us. If anyone is ashamed of him and his words now, then Jesus will be ashamed of them when he returns. What is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about being in the college classroom, uh, the first hour of being a, a a big state college and an atheist professor blasphemes the name of Christ in an 800-person class and it's your first hour of college and it hits you like a ton of bricks and you say, I, you cower in fear, you don't say anything. Is Jesus talking about that kind of situation? Is Jesus talking about when you overhear a conversation when you're in line at Starbucks and you you have an opportunity to, to butt in and to speak the name of Christ, but you don't? Is Jesus talking about that kind of situation? There are all kinds of reasons why it may be the right thing to speak up in either instance. And we certainly should want to speak the name of Christ in our personal lives. And it's a great calling upon the people of God to do so. But this passage has already established the context of Jesus being the leader who goes before us. Who lays aside his glory and who carries the shame of his life and his suffering. What Jesus is saying is that his people at all times, in all places, must never be ashamed of the gospel. Must never be ashamed of the gospel that Christ endured shame, that he became a spectacle of reproach, that he became an object of scorn, a hated figure. That is the gospel, the Holy Son of God rejected and despised, and that it is at the cross that our sins are fully paid for. In this age, we don't like hearing about sin. People do not want to hear that there is a right and a wrong. Even more so, people do not want to hear that the only way of salvation is by trusting in the one who died for sin. We have all kinds of evidence out there that people are ashamed of the gospel. People are ashamed that the cross is where sins can be fully forgiven. People do not want to hear about that. There are all kinds of theories of the atonement now that have been cropping up for multiple centuries, trying to explain away the cross, trying to explain away that that is where Sins can be wiped away. Jesus says you must never be ashamed of the gospel because to be ashamed of the gospel, everything from the fact that we are desperately sinful to the cross to the resurrection, being ashamed of any of those things is a tragedy. And it's a tragedy because it is being completely tone deaf to what the gospel is. God had every reason to be ashamed of us. He had every reason to be ashamed of us. Sinful, running from him, having scorned his name, having spit in his face. God had every reason to be ashamed of us. But Jesus comes, lays aside his heavenly glory, suffers and dies. The book of Hebrews says that he is not ashamed to be called our brother. Hebrews chapter 11 says God is not ashamed to be called our God. May we never be ashamed of the gospel of how sins are forgiven, of how salvation is won. Jesus calls us to such a thing. May we never be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to all who believe. Weak, poor, beggarly sinners reconciled to him through faith in Jesus Christ and transformed forever to be his disciples who relinquish control, who reorder their love, and who always return to grace. Let's pray. We thank you for the truth of the gospel, Father. Forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that the truths of the kingdom that your son established would seep into our hearts. That we would be reminded of the call that Jesus has placed upon us. He is the leader, the forerunner, the author, the perfecter, the finisher. That he calls us to live in such a way that shows the value, the transcendent value of his kingdom. Give us power by the Holy Spirit to live according to how our Savior calls us to. Forgive us of our many sins. Send us out into the world once again. In Christ's name, amen.